You're listening to the Laugh Factory Podcast Network. For more shows, visit the podcast page at laughfactory.com. It's the after laugh, after laugh. Welcome to the after laugh, after laugh, after laugh. <laughs> after laugh, man. <laughs> Go ahead and pull up a chair. <laughs> Hey guys, welcome to the Afterlife. I am very excited for my guest here today. I've been I've been trying to get her for a long time. Uh, Deborah Eisenstadt, who uh, who is not a comic, although she is comedy adjacent, I would say at this point. Um, how you doing, Deborah? I'm good. Now, did you have to drive here from the Palisades just for this interview? Well, I actually technically don't live in the Palisades. I live in Santa Monica. Oh, okay. That sounded so. so I just want you to make clear about that. Okay, <laughs> that is very school districty, and I did, but there was it wasn't oh. bad traffic. All right. Well, thank you for coming. I know I've been asking you for a while. So, um, to give a little bit of a a precursor to this interview, um, preamble rather. Uh, Deborah, I met at a reading of a film called Before the Sun Explodes. First time I met you, um, I didn't realize that I'd actually seen you couple times perform um and i had seen your work before i didn't think i knew that when i did the first reading and it was a script that you wrote with zeke farrow mm-hmm. and uh the description of the character was like <laughs> ken 40 not a kind of successful comic not really kind of stuck in a rut in a in a bad relationship and i was like wait a second is this me <laughs> um and i do know that zeke did uh, he didn't base it on me, but I was. He pulled from his knowledge of me well, in the creation of the character. Well, but this, just so you know, the script origins were about a script he had given me. Yeah. And that I read. I was like looking for material to direct, uh-huh. and he he had this script, and in it there was a singer. And when I read the script, I was like, "Why isn't this a comedian? Like this would be so much better." What made you it, think that? Just I was just trying to think of like what would make it more interesting for me yeah. personally. Um, and there was a stalker element. And so we basically took those two elements of, we didn't use that script, but then we decided to write one together yeah. about a standup. And then it just sort of evolved. And then we, while we were started writing it, I was like, you know, when you're making such a low budget film, you want to work with what you have. Yeah. And I really didn't know any stand-ups personally very well and he knew you yeah and so then he i watched you you know you on youtube or whatever and then we approached you but we had started writing it then thinking about you interesting because it seemed like maybe that would be a possibility yeah and so when i did the reading the first and you know how it is in this business you use so many readings of scripts plays or film scripts or tv scripts and when you come out of school you're so excited to be a reading and after a while you're like I got a reading. Oh, oh, wait. Oh, I, I can't go out. I got a reading at seven. Mm-hmm. So I didn't prepare. I think I like did a cursory read of the script the first time. And I read it with with Carrie Saffron, who's great. And the feedback I got from Zeke afterwards was like, Deborah didn't really care for you, though. Really? <laughs> she that? was just like, uh, he's like, we're going to do another reading and bring your A game because you, you kind of fumbled it a little bit huh. and then he told me by the way i wrote a lot of this based on you so i was like holy shit i better be the best me that i can be 
so then I, I, I read a lot and I got and I got invested. That was the beginning of me getting super invested. And then you cast me, luckily enough. Um, so, and the process of casting this film was very interesting. You you are a very um, meticulous in your casting. I don't know if that's where particular. Well, I mean, I try to fill the roles with the right yeah. people, but I, I, I mean, yeah, and I like good actors. I mean, I, I really want, like people that are excited. They have to be sort of excited about the project as much as I am. Yeah, I feel because it's when you're making again, when you're making a film for very little, you want people to be enthusiastic. Yes, and one thing I noticed about you when I was in the room with you when we were looking for the f the female lead is. Your intuition. Now, here, here's the thing that I want to maybe address later in the podcast <laughs> as a female director. Now, my mom is the most intuitive person I've ever known in my entire life. And she, she's a creative, she's creatively a brilliant woman. Um, so I've never doubted <laughs> the concept of woman's intuition or a, a woman's creative uh, genius at all. So when I would watch you in the room and you'd be like, someone come in, have a good audition, and you would just be like, <laughs> and I didn't know what the mechanism was behind it, but you just knew. And one of the coolest experiences of the audition process, which I don't know if you want to talk about, was when Tiffany Haddish, Tiffany Haddish came oh, in. Oh, God. Yeah. That would have been a big one. Oh, my God. Would have God. been a big score. Say we just I mean, tell, say what happened. So, I mean, it was like crazy so that happened. I think you called me and you were, you were saying, do you know these people? And then you brought Tiffany Haddish. And I was like... And this is obviously long before Tiffany Haddish blew up. It but wasn't actually that shortly long. Before it, was, she blew it was right before she. you got her to come in. You got her to read the script. She loved the script. She loved it. Then she came in and she just, you know, she's Tiffany Haddish. She's I mean, she, she, came in. she was brilliant. And I was like, she, you're, you're cast. Yeah. And, and basically was, in the room, I cast her. You cast her in the room, which if yeah. anyone's an actor... <laughs> That almost never happens. That, that's happened to me once in my career where someone said, you want to do it? And I was like, oh, sure. And it was like an off-Broadway show. So um, Tiffany came in and was just unabashedly herself. Which I love. Which you, know, you love. And she is just a, a magical person. Yeah. She comes to the room. She just sucks in all the energy and you kind of, and she's captivating. And it was interesting too, because she was reading the lines, but the lines were kind of there and they kind of weren't there. And she kind of improvised. Care. Yeah. And you didn't care because you were looking at her like, this person's perfect for it. Um, and then what happened after that is Tiffany... She went off to another audition the same day. The same day she went to the audition. The same day. Same day. So, that, so it was, She goes in for what was... So what happened is I called her um, to try to... I was like, to push her to, to do it. And she was like, I love the script. I really want to do it. She goes, I just had two auditions, I think the same week, for something called The Carmichael Show and something called Keanu. Yeah, it was the Carmichael show. That Carmichael day, show. she came in for us. She had either just come from the car. It was either she was coming or going from that that audition. Yeah. So, and she said, you know, I had a call back, so we'll see. And in my head, I'm going, it's freaking Hollywood. What are the chances you're going to book like a lead in a feature film or a lead, a principal in a TV series? Come but my on. memory is that she was going to do it. Like she said, yes, she was going to do it. Your movie. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And she was then, so excited. And then she got the... She got it, both. It, she got both the movie the, and the TV show. But also, yeah, that she got that other movie. The Keanu. Way, yeah, Keanu. The, the yeah. Jordan Peele. And, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and I think for a bit, she was talking to her people. And, and at that point, you know, the forces of Hollywood just kind of coalesced on her. And they were like, here we go, Tiffany. We're going to push you to big things. 
And she's like, I want to do this little indie. And they're like, mm. I don't think they probably, her people probably didn't make a huge effort to make the indie work. Well, no, but we also were like on under a time constraint yes. with everyone else's schedules. And I wanted it to work with her, but it just, the t- it was all about timing. Yeah. Yeah. Like, so if we had maybe postponed it for her. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. You, yeah, wow. you never know. This is, anyway. It would have been interesting. To see it would have been interesting. Yeah. yeah. Who knows? It but anyway, been. we ended up with somebody great. So yeah, Sarah Beller. She was awesome. Yeah. So, um, now the, the casting pro is this something you like when you're directing? Do you like casting? Is I, that, I do. Yeah. You do? Especially because I don't cast people the way normal. I don't, I don't think I do the casting thing. I do the casting thing the way I wish somebody had done the casting thing with me. Yeah. You know, which is how, which is more personal and more oh, getting to know the person yeah. and seeing what they bring to the table as themselves first yeah. and then having them read and also incorporating that. Like as I, because I'm writing the script, I like to incorporate the person I'm going to cast into my script. Yes. So I would take, you know, pick and choose, you know, stuff from your life, perhaps if it works and if it's better than what I've written, why not? Yeah, you know? of course, of course. Why not try to make that part of the story? Yeah. Um, and just collaborating, you know, I, I feel like some directors are more collaborative than others, but I really like to collaborate. I think the best are collaborative. I, that's my personal feeling. I, I think, I, I think. Yeah. I mean, I don't know, but yeah, um, I like, so I like I, that. Per- I do way. want to go back to um, sort of. The origin story. We don't have to go, do, but uh, I want to talk about uh, your brief experience as an actress because you were a very successful actress really quickly out of school, mm-hmm. and then um, you were sort of uh, aware of things about it that you hated. Well, I was depressed. Yeah, I was depressed. depressed. So as an how, how did that how did that pan out for you? Where did you train as an actress? I trained. Well, I, I was a, ma- a theater major in school. In college. Which is where? Bennington College, okay. where I did acting and directing and writing. Oh, wow. Um, then when I graduated, before that, though, like every summer I would do like intensives at Circle in the Square or um, I went up to Shakespeare and Company. So you and I always knew you wanted there. to be an actress. Yeah. At, from the time I was really young. Yeah. I started taking acting classes in the city. I would take the train to the bus or the bus to the train into the city from Queens, where I'm from. Oh, wow. To take acting classes with this acting teacher in, in Times Square. I was like 13 when I started. Oh, wow. So I knew at a very young age that's what I wanted to do and I was really serious about it. Yeah. Um, and then I studied at UCLA. I studied at, um, I don't know, I did all these intensives, you yeah. know, on top of majoring all in the, it at like college. Like the Meisner yes, and I did all the techniques, every... everything. I was so, I had been studying for so many years for so long. And then by the time, I studied with this one guy, Alan Langdon. Do you know him from know. NYU? Uh, anyway, um, there were a lot of like seminal teachers and stuff. That, yeah. Um, and then by the time I graduated college, I went and, was intern was a intern at Circle and Circle Rep. Circle Rep. Do you remember yes. that place? Uh-huh. And then I started going on open calls and backstage, and I started getting work. You know, and these were just Broadway. like off off Broadway yeah. or off Broadway. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so I was doing Brecht, and you know, yeah. I did like I and I. You were some a regional. serious I was New, like York serious theater, New York theater smoking person. cigarettes outside. And then they were looking for an understudy in David Mamet's Oleana. This is an open call. This is an open call. Now, for people who don't know, so David Mamet is probably one of the probably one of the biggest playwrights in American history. I mean, 
the, the century, maybe he's um. I don't really care for him, to be honest. But um, no, yeah, he, a lot of people. I mean, he's, he's polarizing for sure. He's polarizing. Uh, Glenn Gary, um, Glenn Ross is probably what he's most famous for at this point. I would say, mm-hmm. although he's American Buffalo and your your play uh, Oleana, which. Um, what was that process like? How did you, so you went in as an open so call for I an understudy. So I go in the open call. I hadn't seen the play. Yeah. I read the play though. Yeah. And I really loved the play that I read. So the play at this point was being done off Broadway? Yes. It was being done at the Orpheum Theater off Broadway. His wife was playing the Rebecca lead. Pigeon? Rebecca Pigeon. Uh-huh. Mary McCann was playing the, under, was in the understudy. His wife, the, the actual part, is kind of um, brutal when you're doing it because the audience cheers every night when the girl gets beaten up. <laughs> and um, <laughs> so hate, me, it's a hateful character. It's like a completely hateful character. So and tell I, me briefly, it's, for people who don't know the play, just give a, a quick sort of It's rundown. a two-person play, a, a teacher and student. And the stu- and it's a power, power play, basically, where the, one, the teacher starts off with all the power, and at the end, the student has all the power, and there's a, it's all about um, political correctness and sexual harassment, and she accuses him of rape, basically. Um, and it's just a he said, she said kind of story, and it was off of the Clarence Thomas thing, I think, is where, where oh, was that the I think that's what inspired him. Um, but it was really well written. Yeah. Really amazing play. Really hard to watch. Really controversial, really popular. It started on Boston and then it moved to Off-Broadway. Um, and so this was to be like the second understudy. So yeah. I was uh, uh, auditioning to take over to the understudy while the understudy took over the role. William H. Macy played the guy Yeah. Off-Broadway. And I went in and I kept getting called back and called back. And then I went and saw the play finally. They had me see the play. And then I met, I auditioned for David Mamet. What was your reaction when you seen, you saw the play? It was not like I had envisioned really? it. No. In a good way or a bad way? Well, it was, I think, the beginning of me realizing I'm, I'm a director. Like, I don't want to. Interesting, yeah. Like, I have my own interpretation. And what I saw was, like, not what I had imagined. Yeah. And I had something very clear in my head. But anyway, it was, I was like, I was young. I was 22 or something, 23. And I was so confident. Sure. And I was like, I can do this. Yeah. You know, like I already had memorized the whole play. Like my memory was so good. I could mem- I looked at it once. I could memorize it. Yeah. So I was super prepared. And um, well, I went in and, you know, David Mamet has a theater company in New York City. The Atlantic Theater Company. And he was seeing all his students and I came out of nowhere. So I ended up taking over the understudy. And I remember at an understudy rehearsal, he said, do you want to get up there? You know, just that is unheard he, of. By the I way, I think he just liked he how just I was interpreting the role. To you, yeah. So I was like, yeah, and I knew the lines. Yeah, and I was so it was like one of those moments where it's like where you know whatever, whatever preparation meets opportunity yeah. equals luck. You know, it was like that kind of thing. So I was totally prepared, and I got up, and I just like was so. So when you got up, did did he tell the person on like, hey, take a night off? Yeah, no, no, he he, he just was. This was in a rehearsal. Oh. This was, he was rehearsing the understudy and I was watching the rehearsal. Oh, he said, do you want to do the rehearsal? And I was sitting there and he's like, do you want to try? You want to get up? And I was like, yeah. Like, yeah. I was like, absolutely. Put me in, coach. Yeah. And so then I got up and I I was just really confident. And um, I think. Um, and he saw it. And after like it. a month, they were going to go on tour with Ileana and William H. Macy was going to leave the off Broadway production and go on tour. And. Um, 
then he had me do some shows in New York. You know, he had me take over, you know, do some shows and I did some shows and then he cast me to do, to go on the, to go to the Kennedy Center with it and go to a bunch of different places. So when he had you do the show, because I, I, my, my first job uh, ever in New York was an understudy job and I was friends with a guy I was understudying and he was like, look, maybe I'll <laughs> give you a matinee on a Wednesday one day, but it was also, it was his choice to mm-hmm. let me go on stage. Right. He called in sick or whatever. Or took a leave. Um, but to have the director to have the main actress sit out while mm-hmm. you got... That's what he did? Yeah. That's pretty crazy. She probably wasn't very happy about that, was she? Um, I don't think anybody at the Atlantic <laughs> Theater Company <laughs> was happy about me, but whatever. But you're I, like, hey, I got mammon on my side. I, yeah, I but I didn't feel the love. Like, I wasn't feeling like... It was hard because I was so young and... Yeah. Everybody, I just felt like I'd Who go the to these like you? dinners and stuff and everyone would be looking at me like, "Who's she?" <laughs> you know, and I definitely got that vibe, but yeah. you know, they were, you know, David and Bill were nice to me and you know, I felt like I was contending with not being liked a little bit, you know. Yeah. Did you feel that not being liked was from the women or the men or both? I don't know. I, I could have been projecting it too. Like sure. I don't know if that's real. And also maybe the character and influencer. Yeah, and the character. So I I mean, I just I started doing, I did that part for like a year. Yeah. And then. A year, this is off-Broadway. This is, well, off-Broadway, but then I toured with it. Oh, you toured with it? The Kennedy Center. With William H. Macy. Yeah, with William H. Macy. And then I auditioned to understudy on Broadway, The Sisters Rosenzweig, and I got that part. Uh-huh. And I remember they hired another understudy to take over the role in this in New York, Um and she, she, it was a night where the actress couldn't go on, and I was understudying uptown. Yeah. And she freaked out, and they called me, and I had to run downtown and do the part. Oh, what, what do you mean she freaked out? She's like, I can't do it. I yeah. can't go on stage. She's like, I don't want to do it. Wow. The understudy they hired. So I went down and did it. Oh, wow. And that was just amazing. So and you- then I went on tour with the Sisters Rosenzweig. They did, I did a national tour, which was like a year or two. Mm-hmm. And while I was on the national tour, David was scheduling to do the film of Oleana and yeah. his wife was supposed to do that and, and how, she got pregnant okay and she was really sick she probably had hyperemesis yeah um and they they called me to do it and that is i mean that's enormous you're you're what 23 24 at this 23. point yeah and you're offered a lead in a david mamet movie mm-hmm. and this is sort of at the height of the indie film craze going on right there mm-hmm. um so that's huge. You just offered it. You have to audition for the film. They no. just Yeah. I mean, I auditioned to understudy, but I knew yeah. the play and I think, you know, they wanted to shoot it quickly and it was yeah. convenient to have me because I knew the role back and forth. And yeah. um, he obviously, you know, he, it was nice of him to do because I think he could have gotten just about anybody. Sure. And your first, so your first experience on a film set, mm-hmm. you were a lead in a David Mann movie. I think yeah? so. Yeah. So what I mean, was I did that a sh- like? Some short film. You did some short films, but. Um, well, they, we shot it like the play really yeah i mean it was a much like the play only i was now in the play i i was free to do really what i wanted because i was on stage and he wasn't always there yeah but then when we were on set he it's a real he he has a very like happy set he i learned a lot actually from how he ran his set how he treated everybody um but his direction was very technical yes you know, and it was That's very much comp- like I could not say things necessarily the way I wanted yes. to, and I had to say things the way he wanted. So there was a certain amount of um, 
structure in there that was different than the play. Yeah. And, um, you know. That makes sense. I mean, I, I think that one of the complaints about David Mamet that people do have when they look at movies of his, and I don't want to shit talk his wife, but sometimes things can, can come off robotic mm-hmm. because he actually has a book called True and False, right? Or yeah. True or False. And yeah, basically the book so. is like, it basically the thesis of the book is, hey, actors, uh, calm the fuck down. Just read my lines. Yeah, just say the words. Don't try to interpret it. Don't try to put a spin on it. Just say the words and the story will be told. Yeah. And sometimes that's super effective and sometimes it can feel a little robotic. So, um, yeah, I, yeah, I think it's a, it can get soulless, you know, I think if it's not done right, yeah. I think it's done right. Like I think William H. Macy knows exactly how to yeah, he's a perfect work with actor. him yeah. and he, I mean, it was a little disorienting, I think for me a bit, you know? Yeah. Um, but ultimately when I saw the film, and where did you see it? Was it at Sundance? Was it like... Just... I went to the... I think it opened it in Chicago. But when I saw it, how he edited it and his choices and all the things, I was like, that's not my choice. Like, I was... I would have had different choices. Yes. Of how I interpreted this play. So, that was sort of my first inkling of like... That kind of bummed me out. I was yeah. like, that's not my interpretation. Yeah. I did a take that I liked better than the take he used. Not basically. even that so much. It's just how he interpreted the entire script. It was Got like it. back to the play yeah. where, you know, it's a little more, you know, but um, so th- I think that was sort of my first beginning of really want feeling like, I don't want to be the person in the movie or in the play or in the thing. I want to be the one to decide making those decisions about yeah. how things are being interpreted. That makes sense. Um, and I was already like a directing student in college and I already had that interest. It was just that I was happened to be getting work as an actress. I happened to be really lucky, young. And then when I went on tour, I saw women in who are like actually now younger than me, but who are middle aged and uh, with kids at home and touring. And I was like, I don't want that. I don't, like, I don't want, want that, that life, yeah. you know. And I knew pretty soon. I didn't want that life. And I, I was really kind of not happy. I didn't really know who I was. Sure. You know, I was still really young. And so I started taking classes down the street from me at the new school, a film class. And I made a short. And um, I was just needing to do my own thing. And I got into South by Southwest. And then they gave me a scholarship to finish there to get my master's. So when you get in, what do you mean you got into South by South? Oh, the short did. Yeah, the, the short, short got did, into yeah. the film festival, South yeah. by Southwest, but I was still acting. Yeah. And I had a really bad experience doing like this two, like this epic production of the Greeks at the Alley Theater in Houston. Ugh, everything about that and sounds awful. <laughs> I was supposed to move to Lincoln Center. It was like this epic production. There were like flames shooting out of the state. <laughs> I mean, it was insane. I was playing all these different Greek characters. and all, Like really, it sounded great, but I had yeah. also had gone from living in LA and being really unhappy as an actress in LA and doing television, like really kind of shitty yeah. TV. Yeah. Um, and being on set of these television shows and reading the scripts. I'm like, this is so not like, not what I want to be doing. Yeah. And then other acting, other actors on set who are really like, just happy to have a job. Yeah, exactly. And I was like, there's something wrong. Like this, I should be happier. Like this, I should be grateful for this. So what, what happened at the Greeks in Houston? Um, the director ultimately locked me 
in the elevator. Like there was like a whole scene where I got in a thing with him and then he took me in an elevator and he walked me in between floors. And I was like so freaked out. I was like, so he got mad at you and he locked you. Well, he wasn't working with me. Like he wanted to just do what I need to do what I did in the rehearsal. And I really wanted to work on the character. Yeah. And it was an, he was so overwhelmed with all these, it was like 10 different, 10 Greek plays in two nights or something. And I guess he was like, she, she's fine. We don't need to work with her. So I was like trapped in Houston (laughs) with all these people. And it was just like this surreal experience and I didn't feel like I was rehearsing. Yeah. So by the time he was rehearsing me, I was kind of pissed. Yeah. And he wasn't really working with me. And I was just frustrated. And then we kind of got in this thing and I asked, I begged him to fire me. And he wouldn't. He wouldn't fire no, you. No, and then I was on stage doing this production and everything seemed so absurd to me. Like I would have to fight laughing. <laughs> like I couldn't. I was so it was and that and was everyone it. took it so seriously. Yeah and everyone was so serious. It's the Greeks. And I just couldn't hold <laughs> you know i just try not to laugh all the time and yeah. then i was like i have to stop i'm not this is not good and so but then you finished the run i finished it yeah i finished the run but that was and the end of your I, that was it that i was career? like i'm done i was like i don't want to do this and then i started actually shooting for my feet so then i went back to school i got a scholarship thankfully to graduate school which was my exit and i was like oh now I have an excuse to really get out of this acting thing yeah. that is so not for me. And plus, I was so green. I didn't, I didn't know how to talk to casting people. I didn't know how to – I was just really clueless. Yeah. I, I mean, feel. it's pretty amazing because you're not going to hear a lot of stories about people who started that young, was so successful so early on. And by any metric, that's really successful. At age 25 But I don't think you understand how successful you are when it's so young. Of course. And you can't appreciate it. Of course. You know? So I was just, it was wasted on me. You know? But actually, it taught me that I didn't want to be doing, like, this is not what I want to be doing because I think if I was, that was really my my path, I would have felt differently. So it was lucky because I could have been pursuing something that I would. It's funny because uh, I did two shows on Broadway with a guy named Keith Nobbs who was a really, I don't know if you remember Keith Nobbs, he was a kind of a New York journeyman mm-hmm. actor. He did a lot of series and a lot of uh, plays. But um, he had a call back at the Atlantic Theater Company, I think it was a Mammoth play, I forget which one it was, in 2015, I think. And he was at the call back, he's in the waiting room, and there was an actor next to him that he knew as, an, as a Tony Award winning actor. I think he won two Tony Awards, this guy. And he's now 67 years old. And he's in this nice. And he's like, oh, I hope I get this. I need insurance. And Keith just said, I'm done. This can't, this is, this is the ghost of Christmas future yeah, telling no, me, I, exactly. get the fuck out of this. So now he's in graduate school at Stanford. Mm-hmm. And I, he's having the time of his life. He's, he's a, he's a gay guy up in San Francisco as a 33 year old. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Being a college kid is great. Um, yeah, no, I think that's wise. Anyway, so I wanted to talk to you about, uh, uh, back to Oleana. Um, when I was in a camp, when I was in college, I was a camp counselor, and um, I didn't get a sexual harassment charge lev- levied, levied at me. Um, <laughs> and by the way, you say camp counselor right away, like, what's going on, yeah. Jeffrey? I, whatever. <laughs> um, so I, uh, there's another counselor. I was 20. She was 19, maybe. Mm-hmm. And we'd have lunch together. And I think maybe I had some bravado or whatever it was. And we would talk about dating. And I was like, yeah, I hooked up with this girl last night. And she was cool. She's really cute. Or whatever. And I think we'd, and she would ask me questions about 
sex because maybe she was a virgin. Or, and I was like, well, let me tell you about sex. Um, never touched her, never hit on her, never tried to. But for some reason, something I said triggered her on one Friday. And Monday, the head of the camp called me in and said, you made her feel uncomfortable. The U word. And I said, what do you mean? Like, she comes and sits with me at lunch and we have a conversation she asked me questions. I answer them. She goes, yeah, but you made her feel uncomfortable. And I was like, that's her fault. That's not my fault. You know, like, basically, like, screw her. I'm not going to, like, sit down and take this. And I was like, like, blah, blah, blah. Now, cut to me watching Oleana years later. And I remember thinking, or maybe it was, like, next year or something. I remember thinking, I get it now. Because it wasn't that I said anything necessarily that was wrong or bad or did anything that was wrong or bad. I judged her to be someone who I could have this conversation with. And so that was a mistake on my part. And I feel like that is the point of Oleana is like, and, and same thing with sexual harassment everywhere. It's not like if you, if you say something to a woman, it's automatically sexual harassment, right? But if you say something to a woman that you don't know, and you judge to be a woman that's your friend or your homie or whatever it is, and she interprets the wrong way, that's your fault for judging her, judging her to be, being that comfortable. And I think in my life, and I think even now, like sometimes you can be familiar with people in a way that you don't think is a problem, but it doesn't matter what you think. If they think it's a problem, that's what matters. And I think mm -hmm. that's a lot of the discussion going on right now. There's a thing with female comics now, a lot of them are talking about where they don't hug male comics now. And the general sort of protocol is like, hey, what's up? And I respect that. But it's also, as a guy, and particularly in the comedy world, everyone's your homie. You know, everyone's your friend. And you can joke about everything, right? That's usually the way it's been. And now there's an added sensitivity just to even coworkers. And, the co and comedy is one of the few places that doesn't have an HR department. Hmm. So everything is self-policed. Um, so I don't know. I, I felt like that was... So when I watched Oleana, when I watched you and Oleana, it really kind of made me go, oh my God, that's really interesting. I didn't realize that just how subjective it is and that even if you are quote unquote right in your head, it doesn't really matter because the perception is, is the issue. Mm -hmm. Is that something you believe? Is that something that you... I mean, I have a hard time. I'm trying to grapple with the whole Me Too thing because I've had a lot of experiences in my past, which actually I feel like led me to be an actress in the first place. And I was always getting these victim roles, kind of. Interesting. Um, Is that something you could talk about? or? I mean, it's, you know, what was interesting about the whole Me Too thing was like, I'm not alone. Yeah. I don't talk about what happened to me. I don't talk about it because I don't want to be identified sure. as that. And I feel like when you once you say it, that happens. Um, it's not something I'm hiding, you know, my friends know what, you know, but I, I was attacked. Yeah. I mean, brutally, brutally attacked. Um, and I felt like I was dealing a lot of my, the, the reason I went into acting so seriously was to come to terms with it and have the language. I didn't have, I didn't know how to articulate what had happened. Yeah. So doing plays or doing Shakespeare or doing like these really intense, like the Greeks, you're given this language to express that rage, that fear, that intensity. And that's what that offered me. Yeah. Uh, so I was able to purge that through doing, through acting. And so when I was on stage, I was not really, that was me. Yeah. 
you know, hidden behind those lines. For sure. Um, and like David Mamet's words are so powerful. Like, you know, just having the powerful words and as a female getting to have those words and be heard and listened to as an actress is a, is a powerful feeling when you're feeling very, you know, unempowered in your yeah, life. Yeah, unheard, yeah. Um, especially as a young woman, it, you know, in when I was growing up. It's not like it is now. Yeah. Um, and I grew up also in a family where boys were treated different than girls and you know there's a lot of sexism throughout my life um and so acting afforded me some power yeah which was not really why you should do it either you know yeah exactly it's not the right reasons so i realized too that i'm doing this for the wrong reasons this is my therapy you know this is not this is not healthy that's one of the things in cognitive behavioral therapy they say that the mantra that keeps you fueled is also the thing that is slowly killing you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I don't want to go too deep into, but but when this did happen to you, did you have was your family a resource? Were your friends no. a resource? You didn't have therapy, anything. So no. really, it was just acting. Yeah, that gave you the outlet. Yeah, and so and I had and I per and I, yes, and it was fascinating. Actually, I mean, there's like a whole long story I won't go into, but how everything did kind of come to a head at this Shakespeare thing through a Shakespeare workshop that I did where I unconsciously picked a monologue to go there with that actually I was confronting it was like Lady Anne's confronting her murderer yeah and the wounds start to spontaneously bleed yeah and it was like me unconsciously I didn't even know why I picked it yeah but it was me confronting this person who I'd never gotten it was a person who you know was in a mask it was like really like a oh wow not somebody I knew it was a stranger yeah um so I was able to like I was doing it out of kind of survival mode, you know. Yeah. Um, and people didn't know that when I was doing Oleana when I got that part. But yeah. it makes sense that I got that part. Of course. Um, and David Mamet, for some reason, he must have picked it. up on some subtle cue in your yeah, in your well, my desperation or my you know yeah. my need to my anger, my yeah. intense anger. So that said, what I was saying about the Me Too thing that I have a hard time with is. That there is an, there's been such an imbalance for so long where women have been shamed, you know, and I'm kind of obsessed with reading about stories about women now. I'm trying to figure out what my next project is, but I definitely am looking into stories about women like in the 60s and 50s when they were young and how they were treated. Um, And... I don't. I think it's a mistake to now turn that onto men and shame. Turn this into a shaming thing with Mm -hmm. men. Yeah. Um, Where I mean, I'm not talking about Harvey Weinstein. Of course. I'm talking about men who don't know what they're doing, and they just need to be educated. Sure. And once they are, they're gonna adjust. Yes. But I think there's we run the risk of it just becoming so lopsided again on the other way. You know, I think that we need to evolve in a way that um, isn't making the same mistakes on an eye for an eye, you know? Yeah, exactly. I do think that um, as a single guy now, <laughs> uh, I do think that um, it has been interesting to say the least, but not, not necessarily in a bad way. I'm not like, eh, poor, I'm a poor white man. What I have to deal with? No, not at all. But at the same time, there are certain things that you hear about and certain phrases you hear about, like, well, he kissed me without consent. The last time I asked a girl to kiss her, she said, you just ruined the mood. Just kiss me, goddammit. It's confusing. It's confusing. Yeah. And I think that's fine to be confusing as long as everyone can accept the fact that's confusing as opposed to, 
it's not confusing. It's just what it is because we don't know what it is yet. You know what I mean? Right, and that's also like there's there's individualism. You know, just because somebody might want to be asked, "Can I touch you here?" Yeah. You know, I I don't think I'd want to be. I think it'd be awkward and very unromantic <laughs> to be like having to answer questions during like something. I don't know, but yeah. I, here's I, my questionnaire. Fill it out. Yeah. Here are the boxes. I don't know what the answer is. I'm just saying that I I do see like there's problem. It's just it's just problematic to shame is not the place to go yes i agree you know i mean unless you're doing something unless you're a rapist you know of course of course but i'm or some you know doing something awful but i just think um it's a societal thing and we've lived in it and it's invisible there's an like an invisibility to it that people don't are not aware of yeah you know we've been swimming in it we're like and we can't see the water we don't know we're swimming in it interesting so i think it's just an aware a heightened awareness that needs to that's starting to happen yeah i agree i think it is but i i get it the subtle things are what's so infuriating yeah you know you know i believe me i know <laughs> i know when when aziz and sorry that story came out about aziz i think that was a tipping point for a lot of people where they said can we just pump the brakes a little bit here because aziz is just a dork i don't know if you've read that story he's just a no, dorky guy who who Got a little aggressive and kind of in a, in a fumbling kind of way, and it, it it seemed like it was a really it didn't seem like it warranted a an article in a newspaper. I guess mm-hmm. is my point. But again, that's not for me to say because it was also again he judged the mistake was he judged her to be someone that was okay with it, and there's an added uh, you know responsibility to be like to really get to know if someone's okay with anything that you're doing. Right, and it's also. Women need to stop apologizing yes. and stop just be taking it. Yeah. And they need to say, get off. You know, oh, no, absolutely. get the fuck away from me. Whatever it is. I mean, men need to do their part, but it's a both, it's a both sided thing. Yeah, absolutely. Where, now, I do, I do want to, um, and we could talk about that all day because yeah. there's so much stuff about it. So I do want to talk about your foray into being a director. Now, you did the shorts and then you were able to direct, uh, your first feature was what again? My first feature was a thesis, my thesis for graduate school. Was that the one with Peter Dinklage? No. 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 Um, and that I shot, um, you know, that was my thesis, and it, it ended up winning an Independent Spirit Award. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. My first feature. Where did it go to festivals? It won the Grand Jury Prize at Slam Dance. Which is great. And I, again, was pretty naive to film, fe- like, I was naive to all of it. Yeah. And it was like a huge, when I won the Grand Jury Prize at Slamdance, I didn't even, when I made this film for, for school, I just thought it was for school. For sure. I did not know. So I didn't really even get all the proper clearances. I was <laughs> shooting it really guerrilla style. Yeah. There were, so getting it out there now and seen is difficult simply because I don't have all the rights to, but it, I love that film. So yeah. is it is it something people can see? Is it? I mean, if they know me, I can give you a. But I don't <laughs> think I can. I mean, it can It did get distribution, and yeah. at the time, I got clearances. I guess. So, um, yeah, I guess I. It could. There could be a life. Before so basically, it. like everything you do, is successful, Deborah. That's where we're getting. <laughs> well, here. no, I don't. <laughs> people don't know who I am. Okay, so I'm um, not successful. I mean, I'm not. I'm, well. I'm not. I, I do know that when we did Before the Sun Explodes, it had been after hiatus, right? Well, I had three kids. 
I got very sucked into like a lot of stuff happening in my family. You know, I was yeah. taking care of my mom who was sick. I was had three babies. I was, you know, and my and you, my husband is a filmmaker who's Brett very Morgan, successful. Who and the so kids say in the picture and I was sort of taking letting him you know, be fabulous and yeah, make his yeah. movies and helping how did, him. How did that feel? Was that something that you felt? I've always said that I would be happy to have a, have a wife who would walk the red carpet, look great, and I would hold her purse behind her. I'm like, mm -hmm. I'd be okay with that mm -hmm. if I had like a super fabulous wife. Um, and then I would probably after five years be like, mm, I'll do, I'll give me some <laughs> fucking shit too. So was that something, I guess obviously as a, as a married couple, you mutually agreed upon and you had, and your, your kids are friggin' awesome. Well, my, when I first, when I had my daughter, it was like right after I won the independent spirit award, I got pregnant Yeah. pretty much soon after. And, so, and then my daughter who you've met yeah. was really sick. Really? I didn't so know that. that knocked, I was like, nothing else in the world of matters. Course. And I was just, you know, very much just making sure she was okay. She had to have, you know, she had to be monitored basically for a year Oh wow! to make sure that she was okay. So I just did that. Yeah. And Brett was doing his films, and I was just grateful that I could afford, you know, that we could afford for me to not do anything and just be a mom. Yeah. Um, and then I kind of kept getting pre pregnant and <laughs> <laughs> um, loved being a mother. You loved being a mom, yeah. I really did. Um, yeah. But at the same time, I was always writing um, and always hoping that I would get to make another film. I did make another, I got pregnant soon after my first child, and I made a film like really frantically in nine day shoot that had wow. Peter Dinklage and Melissa Leo in it called the limbo room, which limbo again room. was like made for no money. Um, but it did get, it did do well. Yeah, it got distribution. That. Yeah. Was that at festivals too? It was at festivals yeah. and um, mm. it was, it was distributed. Um, and then I had a third child and, I just, it was just really difficult. My husband was making big, big documentaries and, and doing commercials. And the thing that broke out, your husband was, the kid stays in the picture, right? Well, I know. His first film on the ropes, his first documentary, oh. uh, was nominated for an Academy Award. Oh, wow. I didn't see that one. And then he did um, kids The Kids Stays in the Picture. Which is a huge commercial success for a documentary. Yeah. And um, then he went on, yeah, he's still. So at this point, we have your, you have your three kids and you're being a mom. And everything's provided for. You still have this sort of feeling of like, I want to get like I want to get back in the game. Right. I was also teaching. I was I would teach teach film. Well, I would teach kids writing. Oh wow! I was really into like hanging out with kids. <laughs> I still am. Like I just like kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I would teach um, and do that, and I was doing lots of different things, but mostly being a mom and teaching and writing on my yeah. own and hoping to make something again. And then it, we moved to, and then there was like a lot of just stuff where I was required to be, you know, with my family for, yeah. you know, kind of more tragic stuff. Um, and then we moved here and I was like, I have to make another film. And I started writing the film that's out now, or that's going to be coming out. Which is called Imaginary, Imaginary Order. Order. Was that the original title of it? No. It had like a lot of other titles. Yeah. Um, I don't... Uh, and so that was going to be... I found someone who wanted to produce that for a lot of money. And I was thinking it's going to be a big film. And that wasn't happening. And then both Zeke and I were so frustrated. We were like, we have to make another film. I want to make another film. Like, that's when I said, do you have any scripts? And they showed me this. And then it all evolved into Before the Sun Explodes, yeah. which you were integral in, in actually helping get made because we, 
you came on as a producer. Yeah. And, and that you was, really did help. I, my understanding is that from the first reading to shooting was less than a year or a year. Like the yeah. whole thing was basically it done was in really, a year, which is kind of unheard of which was great. for a film. Yeah. Um, which brings me to the next thing I want to talk about. Uh, you had an article, I think, when your film was at Sundance about being a female director and what it entails and how it, the, the sexism that you feel like is rampant and how people don't hear you or don't listen to you because you're a female. So I do, and I, I want to address that. Before I do that, I want to say this as a way of an amends kind of oh. to you. To oh, you, okay, Deborah. okay. Um, I am, which I've been learning also from this podcast from other comics that I've toured with. Uh-huh. I've always been a bit of a diva. <laughs> I've always been a little bit difficult. I would say when I look back at the people I've been most difficult with, that I've had the most problems with, director-wise, definitely men. Mm. Definitely men. Um, the only time I've been fired is by men. Um, so I do think that working with you, I actually loved working with you, Deborah. I got to say that. Mm-hmm. And I do also recognize <laughs> that I was a, a pain in the ass, too. And I don't want you to think that had anything to do with the thought of like, well, she's a woman because everything you said, I, I, I mean, I agreed with it and, and I liked working with you and I think you're really, really gifted at getting performances out of actors. They don't even know that they're giving sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I recognize that. So I was never, so anything that where I was being difficult or like a little bit of a baby, <laughs> Had nothing. It wasn't like personal. It's something I've had to deal with with myself. Like, why is that? Well, I just want to. I want to stop you because that. First of all, that's so nice of you to say. And second of all, I, because I was an actress, I understand how you don't know what you're in. Yeah. When you're doing a film, it's scary. And you were playing a comedian, but you weren't playing yourself. Yeah. You're playing this other comedian who's not that funny. (laughs) You know, so I was really actually empathetic towards you and towards all your questions and everything that you came to me with and all your, whatever difficulties you were having, I never once thought this is sexism at all. I looked at it as this is purely an actor who's concerned about how he's going to come off on the screen. Yeah. And I get that. Like, I get that so much. And I felt like the same thing with Wendy McClendon Covey in this. You know, you're trusting an independent filmmaker who is not Martin Scorsese. You know, you don't know what the hell you're signed up for. Yeah. Um, And I appreciate that because I know, I I think I was very, uh, when I saw myself on screen, it would freak me out. Yeah. So, no, I I didn't think that at all. Okay, good, good. I want to make sure. And I do recognize that, like, during the during the the shoot and after the shoot, I said I said some things to you or wrote some things to you that may have been a little insensitive that I definitely apologize for because it was, you know, I've always been one of those guys who's like, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna say it because I feel it, and that's just stupid. And sometimes it, I, I but lack do you, a, do, do you how do you feel about it now? I mean, like I'm curious. Like, do, was it hard for you to see yourself not being funny on screen? Or I do want to talk about that. It's funny because so we shot. This is connected to the Laugh Factory because we the film is based at a comic who is a regular at the Laugh Factory, <laughs> and we shot several days here at the Laugh Factory, a couple of days, and we had one day set up where we had a, a fake audience with you know extras and stuff, and we had other com J. Chris Newberg and Don Marrera. Johnny Sanchez and me, because we were trying to flesh out the comedy world. Uh, 
And when I got on stage, the directive was, <laughs> don't laugh. Nothing he's doing. Just like, don't laugh at it. Yeah, and to the audience. I to said, the told audience. the audience not to and laugh. Even though, even though it was like part of the script, and that was definitely the story that wanted to be told, um, it's hard not to feel completely devastated by an audience not laughing because if you have a good, I mean, now it's like, if I have a good joke, if I'm, I, I think I have so much more of a stronger point of view in my material now that if people don't laugh, I don't care as much because I'm kind of like, I think it's funny and this is my point of view. So screw you. But when you're doing straight up jokes, like one of the jokes, uh, the first joke I do in the movie is, um, Oh, I'm at the age where I should be married, and that's my, or, or I go single, married, because my character, although married, is pretending he's single. He takes a wedding ring before he goes on stage. Right, his act, he's single. Yeah. And he goes, single, married, single, me. Either I sign up for a lonely existence, jerking off to porn every night, or I stay single. Now, that line will still get a laugh today. As a matter of fact, I think I did it uh, last weekend in. In Phoenix, I did that joke, which I never really do that joke. But in the film, that's the opening, that's and it the does opening. get a laugh. Like you One are funny la- that. No, no, no. But that wasn't. Well, this, the first time you do it, it's just establishing you. Yeah, you do yeah. it twice. Okay. To show the monotony of yes, it yes. too. I'm doing the same so, joke that we do for. Yes, ever. you do it. T- well, but also how a performer. That's what a life yeah. performer is. You're you're regurgitating the same monologue or the same jokes every yeah. single time you get up on stage when you're doing that set. Yes, exactly. So it was just to sort of expose the backstage, you know. Yeah. So when I would when I would do my uh, set and the directive was no one no one laugh and I would just go through the uncomfortableness of no one laughing, which is f- authentic and you feel it and it's like daggers in your soul. And then in between takes, J. Chris Newberg or Dom Herrera would just do stand up and talk to the audience and they would kill. Like the audience <laughs> was there to laugh. They were waiting to laugh and then Dom would go up and just murder the room and Jay Chris would like do his songs and murder the room and then I would go up there and no one would laugh. And it's hard not to feel like, oh my God. So then with, then I think the, the discussion we had was like, Deborah, can we make me a less bad comic? <laughs> you're like, write better jokes, motherfucker. No, but I'm like, is there a way we can make it so candid? And then I remember you're like, oh, he doesn't come off as a bad can. And I think the first review and which is a great review. Maybe it was Hollywood Reporter. I forget what mm-hmm. it was, but it was like yeah, it got good reviews. A, a great reviews across the board. It was like Ken uh, Cooper uh, is an unfunny comic played by Bill Dawes. I was like, God damn it! But now, was that in retrospect? Do you think that it made a difference if he was funny or not? Do you think it plays more to the story you want to tell that he wasn't funny, or do you think it's well, just sort of neither here nor there? I mean, the script was that this, these jokes are so old. Yeah. They're not funny anymore. And it's, I don't know if it's because you've done them to death yeah. as a performer or it's just like you're not mining from what's my, in front of you. Yeah, my the true idea authentic is like as a you, married man with yeah, children. Yeah, you should be doing jokes about, I mean, that's what the whole thing is about, yes. really. Yeah. Um, and a lot of it was sort of inspired actually by Louis C.K., the character for me. Really? Because of how personal his jokes were. Yeah. And... Um, that fascinated me, you know, yeah. like about his family, like to drag your family into that and expose to be that. Expose is the wrong word to use for Lucy K at this I point, guess, I think. I love him though, but I mean, like, you know, it's, it's, what, what is that compulsion to 
throw your family under the bus. You know, like, I, I don't know. I think there's there's almost two schools of comedy. Comics who are like, it's all about your personal life. Right, and it's hilarious to watch, and I loved watching that. Yeah. But at the same time, I was thinking, writing your character, he's not doing that. He's not doing that. And it's, he's not funny as a result. And if he were to be funny, he would be throwing his family under the bus. Yes. Which is not cool. Although, it's also, I think, the pinnacle of stand-up comedy is to throw your family yeah, under no, the bus and Yeah, no, I know, and, and I love stand-up comedy. <laughs> like, I'm a huge fan. Yeah. And I, it's, I was thinking how complicated that is. Yes. And I wanted to write about that. Yeah. I mean, not him per se, but just all comics who bring their personal life onto stage and expose their families in ways that are yeah. almost too personal. I mean, maybe they put filters on it to make it less so, so that their yeah. families don't mind. And maybe their families don't mind. But I I was interested in a character who wasn't doing that. Yeah. And the consequences of not doing that. Yes. You know. And so at the end of the movie, which people you all should watch on Amazon Prime. That's right. Before it's the sun still, explodes. It's still available. Do you think at the end... Uh, by the way, the movie, it's kind of a cliffhanger movie, which a lot of people are like, you should make a TV show. Why isn't it a TV series? I've had uh, so many people say, I go, okay, bring bring the money. Yeah. Um, do you think that Ken becomes uh, a comic who talks about his personal life at the end? Do you think he grows? Do you? <laughs> God, I haven't really thought about it. It's a good question. Maybe it's a question I got to ask myself. I mean, it's either like he's going to do that, I feel, or not do comedy. Like, I don't yeah. know. Yeah. But he's a good dad. Yeah. Yeah, which is most important. Yeah. Um, by the way, real quick sidebar: How are you, how are the kids? Oh, they're great. How is Max? You know, I, I think Max. Oh, is he's a, a rock star. He's a star. Is he? A, Do you follow him on? I, I pretty vacant. I, I think he unfollowed me. No. And I got so upset, I unfollowed him back. Probably. No. I'll him are you kidding? I think so. I'll no, follow him. I don't. He's going to be so. a rock star. Max yeah. Morgan, keep up. So, um, <laughs> so now I want to get to the, the the film that you're really here to promote. Yes, which is playing at the. I was just going to play. At we, the we will air it as soon as possible. Downtown LA Film Festival Saturday night. S this Saturday? Yeah, okay, this we'll put Saturday this night, week. October 26th. October at 8.30 p.m. LA Live, Regal Cinema. And this is a film that you've had sort of in the incubation process for years and years for and years. years before yes. Before the song explodes. Yes. And then it finally came to fruition. Yeah. And it was And Wendy Mc, uh, McClendon Covey. <laughs> Wendy McClendon Covey is the star. Is she Was she instrumental in getting the film done? Or was she just sort of I cast? think her name helped raise yeah. the money. Yeah. Yeah. And she was attached from the beginning, but not always as the main yeah. role. And what is, what is the story behind this film? Um, it's basically about a woman who suspects her husband's having an affair and she's starting to feel estranged from her daughter who's 13, she just turned 13. And instead of confronting the situation that's before her with her own family, she gets fascinated and absorbed by a neighboring family whose problems seem way worse than her own. Yeah. And one by one, they kind of unravel her and she gets, um, Involved with this 15-year-old neighbor boy, teenager. Oh, wow. And uh, I won't say more. He won't say more. But, yeah, it's just, it's crazy. It's very unexpected what ends up happening. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Okay. And so it went to Sundance, which is, if yeah. anyone knows anything about film, it's probably, I mean, next to Cannes, it's the pinnacle of an independent film sort of festival-wise. Mm -hmm. um, now, I did want to touch briefly upon, I don't know how deeply you want to go into this, but... 
the article I read in Variety, I believe, when you talked about your experience being a female director and how you felt that there are ways that you don't feel respected. So I, the general question is, as a woman, uh, how do you persevere in, in a system uh, like where there's just systemic um, disrespect for women's opinions and women as as bosses and directors and everything else? Like, is that how is that something that you combat and fight against or accept? Um, you know, it's hard when you're not sure what it is, you know, like I want to, I could blame where my career is at. Like I've made four feature films and I'm always starting over from the beginning. Sure. Like no one's like, they're all independent. No, yeah. no one's asking me to make a movie. I'm basically making films myself. Um, and it's hard to do, to work that way. But at the same time I have my autonomy, so I'm not really pursuing it as hard as maybe I would because I do like making films this way. Yeah. Um, this particular film, I was working with a lot of different men, and I never had this issue before um, where I did feel like there was a strange thing happening, like from top to bottom, really, where... Um, like the assistant director would be having side conversations with the DP and he was like a really, he was a guy my age yeah, who was really disrespectful and really um, kind of harsh to the women on set. Mm. And I had to fire him. Um, and was, I was it somebody you'd worked with before? No, yeah. not at all. Um, and then for instance, you know, with the sound, I had to polish the sound for Sundance and I found somebody who could do it at um, Warner Brothers or big studio. And he was an older guy. And when I went in to listen to the sound, he had put in like taken all this Liberty with my film and made all these sound effects and done all these things. And I think his intentions were good. But yeah. then when I said, take them out, he questioned me and it would turn into a whole conversation and then a discussion you know and it got really frustrating because he'd done like totally wreaked havoc with my film yeah like i just needed to finish it i was under a deadline i just needed it to be polished and he decided that he wanted to insert his ideas at this late stage like i'm all for like collaborating yeah and but i wasn't there when he put these That's things when in I, when you hired him and to i do. was thinking like if i were a guy would he have done that? And would he be questioning me when I say, take it out? Looking back, do you think that is the case? Do you think I he don't know? Been? Like, again, it, you know, I am where I am. I, I won an independent spirit award. How many years ago? Yeah. Like 25 years ago. I also then had kids. So that got in the way, but I didn't get a phone call from anybody after I won. Um, so I don't know. I really don't know. And I don't want to be a victim. Pretend sure. I'm some kind of victim either, you know, like, I don't know, but it seems like maybe if I were younger and going to Sundance for the first time, and this was my first film, that there would be a lot more doors open to me now than 25 years ago or whenever I made that first film. Yeah. 20 years ago. And you feel that with this uh, production, you feel it was the first time you'd sort of, it came full force like you recognize this is just blatant sort of sexism or at least it occurred to you that way well, it was like the kind of sexism that so goes so unnoticed yeah because it's just having extra conversations around you know decisions that are my decisions to be made in the end yeah and you know i've listened to your idea and i've said no and then you're questioning me still 
Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't know if that's just, you know, I don't want to just people's egos in general. Yeah. Or? I don't know. I don't want to blame anything. Like I don't yeah. want to blame anything, but perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. So, um, what's next for you, Deborah Eisenstadt? Uh, well, I don't know. I'm writing. Do you have any, how many scripts do you have in the, in the, I have a script actually that I need, could be made for a lot, a lot of money and I would need to go out and kind of try to raise that money right now. And yeah. I, this film that's just, you know, going to be released, I guess, end of winter, beginning of spring took so much out of me to make. Cause I was the writer. I was the director. I was the producer. I was the editor. And it was difficult. Like we shot 200 scenes in 15 days. Wow. And I, when I was doing it, I was like, this is the last one. Like, I can't do this again. Yeah. People uh, always say that and they're like, okay. and then I got into Sundance, which was like the light at the end of this dark tunnel. Oh, for sure. Um, so maybe I will make, you know, maybe I'm, I'm just trying to figure out what I want to do next. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Deborah, listen, I mean, I could talk to you forever. I think you're awesome. And thank you so much for coming. Thanks for having me. And I'm me. glad that you accepted my apology for being Oh, my a God. You diva. apologize. I think you're amazing. And, you, and and anyone who doesn't know her work, check her out. Deborah Eisenstadt. That's E I S. Oh, God. Now I'm going to. You're going to spell it? E I S E N S T A D T. And also, uh, Brett Morgan. Check out his work if you haven't seen his documentaries as well. And her film. Give the details on the screening again, just in case people can oh, make it. Oh, it's this Saturday night, October 26th, 8.30 p.m., L.A. Live, Regal Cinema's Downtown L.A. Film Festival. And come, come check it out. Come check it out. I, I have not seen it. Are you going to come? I won't be in town. You're I would, kidding. I would definitely All right, then you come. Have to pay, you have to buy a ticket and go see it in the theater when it's... Oh, 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 for sure I will. And all I know all I know about if, if Deborah Eisenstein made it, it's going to be dark and twisted and you're going to feel uncomfortable. Yeah, that's true. In the best true. possible you ways. You will. You will feel very uncomfortable. Which is, <laughs> you know, forget the sexism thing. Maybe people just don't want to feel uncomfortable when they go to see a film. Like, I, I it's kind of cringy. Yeah, I think... But in a good way. Like Cringy I, is good. I like it. Yeah, it's good to feel manipulated yeah. and feel uncomfortable after a film. Otherwise, like the worst thing is just to be boring. Just don't be boring. Yeah. And you will never be boring. Okay, thank ever. you. Thank anyway, you. thank you so much for coming. Thank bye you. Bye-bye, signing off. Hey, guys, hope you enjoyed that episode of The After Laugh. If you liked it, make sure you give it five stars on iTunes and tell your friends about it. Subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And please spread the word. Thank you so much for supporting. And check out our other podcast on the Laugh Factory Network, Fanatics with Sean Joshi. It's the after laugh, after laugh. Welcome to the after laugh, after laugh, after laugh. <laughs> after laugh, man. <laughs> Go ahead, pull up a chair. <laughs>